I'm Kara Miller. This week on Innovation Hub, evolution shaped our bodies into what they are today, for better and for worse. It's so not optimal. It's just not what an engineer would design if they were designing from scratch. But of course, we know that natural selection and evolution does not work like an engineer. Then what P.T. Barnum taught today's masters of marketing. He was interested in stirring up not merely knowledge or awareness of what he was selling, but also creating fake controversies that would in turn generate more interest. Plus, what we're learning about the brain is shaping our courts. How do we take this data that had always been mysterious for the entire course of human history, we can now pull it out, but not with 100% accuracy, with all its warts, um, what do we do with that? That's all coming up next on Innovation Hub. Welcome to Innovation Hub, I'm Kara Miller. It's probably a safe guess, if you're like just about everybody else on the planet, that you're not completely 100% happy with your body. Even the model Cindy Crawford once noted that when she gets up in the morning, she does not look like Cindy Crawford. But the truth is, your problems aren't just cosmetic. They go way deeper than that. You've got retinal cells that are on backwards. You've got part of a tailbone for a tail you don't have. You probably need some sort of technology, either glasses or contacts, just to read a book. You get more colds than you really should, and the list goes on. Now, do not panic here, but the honest truth is, you're a mess. Nathan Lentz writes about why exactly we are such messes in his book, Human Errors, a panorama of our glitches from pointless bones to broken genes. He's also a professor of biology at John Jay College at the City University of New York. Nathan, thanks for your time. Uh, it's my pleasure to be here. So what first got you thinking about all the things that evolution got wrong when it comes to the human body? Well, it's funny. Actually, two things got me thinking about it. Number one is this idea that a lot of biologists have and um, uh, non-biologists and biologists that the body should be perfect, that mm. evolution produces perfection. Right. Uh, and I sort of call that the new creationism uh, because really it, it, that's not how evolution works at all. Evolution sort of does the best it can so that you can survive long enough to reproduce and it really doesn't care about getting things perfect. Right, right. So that, that was one part of it. But the actual flaws that fascinate me the most are the flaws in our genes but also the flaws in our anatomy mm. um, because it's so not optimal. It's just not what an engineer would design if they were designing from scratch. But, of course, we know that natural selection and evolution does not work like an engineer. They right, don't right. take a situation and try to build something perfect. You have what you have. Tiny little tweaks and tugs is the best that evolution can do. Right, right. And you talk about, like, people, you know, going to museums and they look at, like, the human form, like, you know, the David by Michelangelo, and they say wow, the human body is so beautiful and so amazing. And like you say, in some ways, so perfect. And you say, like, not at all. Like, we have no idea. There are things wrong all over the place. That's right. I mean, it is beautiful, the human body, and what it can do is amazing. But we have flaws, both big and small. I mean, let's talk about just big, obvious things. Okay. We have one opening 
through our neck that we convey both food and air through. What could possibly go wrong? Right. <laughs> um, and choking, of course, is a huge hazard, especially among children. And humans have an especially badly designed throat. Um, we, we brought our larynx up very high so that we could make um, you know, lots of interesting noises, and then it dropped down a little bit so that we could make vowel sounds. All along, it made choking more likely. So hmm. we choke a lot more than other animals because our throat's just not very well designed. And, and thousands of people in the U.S. die every year from choking. And this is not like a little thing, a person or two. This is thousands of people every year. Because as you say, food and air are trying to fit through the same tiny hole. And sometimes that does not work. The same tiny hole. And there are other designs that are even out there in nature. I mean, dolphins don't have this problem, right? Because they move their nostrils all the way to their back. Um, You know, they have a blowhole. And even birds, uh, they have nostrils that go directly to the lungs and don't pass through the throat. So they can have a huge meal in their mouth like a snake. Snakes and birds both do this. Um, And they can breathe just fine even Mm -hmm. when their throat is full of food. Mm -hmm. So what we have is not even the best among our fellow vertebrates. Mm -hmm. We, We really don't have a very good... Uh, throat when it comes to that. It does well most of the time. If you don't choke to death, you know, bully for you. But the point (laughs) is that we could design it better if we could design from scratch. But evolution just doesn't design things from scratch. You you talked about how in some ways what evolution cares about, it's very sort of tunnel vision, right? You just need to reproduce and then the sort of the goal has been accomplished and whatever happens after that doesn't really matter. I, I want to ask you about that because I, I used to have a biology teacher in high school and I remember him saying he had very poor eyesight. And I remember him saying that, you know, long ago, like if he was on the African savanna, like his ancestors had been, he would have gotten eaten by a lion or something because he wouldn't have seen it coming. Um, but, you know, now that he was living in the modern world, he had glasses, he was fine, he could live his normal life, you know, just like anybody who had perfect eyesight. But so many people have bad eyesight. How is it possible that all the people with bad eyesight didn't get eaten on the African savanna and leaving us with like everybody who has perfect eyesight? Well, that's a really interesting example because, as you said, about 40% of the people in the United States and Europe require corrective lenses. Mm-hmm. It's about 75% of the population of Asia. So you're talking about most of the human population don't have very good eyes. And what that tells us, because if you look at other animals, uh, especially like birds and other things that hunt with their vision, Mm -hmm. they don't have these poorly designed eyes. What Mm -hmm. it tells us that we can tolerate this is that we have used other skills to survive. And so if you imagine life on the African savanna, if every single person was a hunter, then I bet you we would have had much better vision than we have. Mm -hmm. But what you have over the last million years or so is pretty extensive division of labor. And so there were many ways that Mm -hmm. you could provide value, many ways that you could contribute that didn't require excellent vision or at least excellent faraway vision. If you could see up close just fine, there's lots that you could do. So I think the story of the human body and why we are particularly flawed among other primates, is that we evolved these big brains, which allowed things like division of labor and other sort of technological innovations that really reduced the pressure on our bodies to perform optimally, because we could escape that lion by having a social network that warns us about lions. Um, So uh, the big brain obviously gave us enormous advantages, but it also removed pressure on our bodies to be perfect. We really didn't have to be so good anymore. Um, As you said, as long as you could sort of scrape by to reproduce, age. It didn't matter if you were healthy. didn't matter if you were obese or not. A lot of things just didn't matter as mm-hmm. long as you made it long enough to reproduce. And then, of course, what humans have is continued selection later in life uh, by contributing to the group. And your children and even their children 
So we have this very highly social structure. We rely on one another so that each one of us really doesn't have to be perfect. Hmm. Another thing that uh, I had never thought about, but now that I think about it, it makes sense, is that we get sick more than most other animals. And I wonder how that evolved. It does not seem helpful. I mean, you know, the times when I've had a cold or a flu, I was not helpful to anybody with anything. So it seems like uh, a really unhelpful evolution to be able to get the cold or like get the flu. Why do we have that? And why do like dogs not get the flu very much, for example? Right. Well, there's two things that are going on in particular since you mentioned uh, upper respiratory infections. Yeah. The first one is a really poor design in our nasal cavity. So the, the largest nasal sinuses, which are right in your cheekbones, the drainage pipe for those cavities is at the top of the chamber rather than at the bottom like you would expect. Mm. What plumber is going to put a drain at the top of a chamber and not the bottom? So what that means is when you're when you're healthy, you know, there's no really particulates and no, everything's fine. Your cilia can sort of move the mucus up to the top and it drains. But if you have any little congestion, any bacteria, virus, even just dusts and stuff can get in there, then you're working against gravity and, and you lose. Not only that, the drainage pipe happens to be very small too, which is another poor design. So what happens, uh, dogs don't have that problem. They have these huge snouts and they have really good flow of the mucus in their nasal cavities. Even our other apes have much better designed nasal cavities than we have. We have a nasal cavity that is almost designed to clog up easily. Mm -hmm. And that's why most of us get four or five colds every single year. Right. Why didn't natural selection fix this? Well, you right. rarely die of it. Right, right, right. right. So that's one reason. Another reason is that we used to live in much smaller communities. And so I don't think early humans got nasal infections near as often as we do. Mm. We live in these in the sort of the global village, so we're passing around these pathogens right, in much right. larger numbers. So uh, civilization, of course, made all this worse. But if we had better designed nasal sinuses, even in the global village, we would not have the uh, upper respiratory infections that we have, at least not as often. Do you think that our success, because I think, you know, I, I think many people would think that, like, humans are a very successful species. There's a lot of us. Uh, we live in a lot of different climates and we're doing OK in very hot and very cold climates. Um, do you think that our success, like, in spite of these mistakes or is somehow our mistakes almost tied in with our success? Like, what's the relationship? I think there is a strong relationship between our flaws and our need to have innovation. So we basically solved problems of our body using our brain. So, okay. so we can live in the Arctic Circle because we're smart enough to figure out how to invent clothing and uh -huh. use proper clothing. Right. And uh, we can also live in sub-Saharan Africa uh, and, and the rainforest and the challenges there. We live in deserts. We live in so many different climates, not because our bodies are so robust. They're pretty robust. But what's really robust about us is we figure things out. We we have this big brain that allows us to solve the problems. But as I said, that sort of reduces the pressure on the on the physical form uh, to be perfect. When you have this brain that can sort of figure out how to do it, then your body doesn't need to. Right. I might also point yeah. out um, our big brains, which have made us very successful up till now, um, really are, might be our biggest flaw of all. Because if you consider all of the biggest threats to our existence right now, every single one of them is of our own making. Hmm. We're not being competed out by some competitor. Right. A new predator hasn't come in. An asteroid isn't on its way that we know of. Every single problem we have is of our own making because our yeah. brains, big as they are, cannot really think or plan more than a generation at a time. So right. we're very bad at long-term planning. 
You're listening to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. I'm talking with Nathan Lentz. He's a biology professor at John Jay College, part of the City University of New York. He's also author of the book Human Errors, A Panorama of Our Glitches from Pointless Bones to Broken Genes. Are there uh, diseases, I believe the top two killers in the U.S. are heart disease and cancer. Um, Are there diseases that you think are tied in with some of these, like, just kind of evolutionary mistakes in our body? Or do heart disease and cancer have other causes? No, I think actually most of our diseases are um, at least made worse by poor design. And and heart disease is a good example, actually. Heart disease is is in some ways uh, an artifact of our immune system. So we have pretty good immune systems, but uh, most people don't realize this, but but congestive uh, heart disease is actually an immune response. It's an inflammatory response in Mm. the blood vessels, in the blood vessel, the great uh, coronary vessels. And so um, if we could just get a hold of our immune system, which, by the way, kills us in all all kinds of other ways too mm-hmm. when it comes to allergies or right. autoimmune diseases right, like lupus right, and so right. on this is our own body going wrong now heart disease there's some stuff we can do about that and of course we're making everything worse with our with our diets and the way that we're living uh, but ultimately it, it really is a an immune system uh, action that that's causing that um, cancer is another beast altogether cancer is something uh, I call it the beast that stalks us all because ever since life evolved from one cell into multi-cells, this was going to be a problem hmm. um, because normally when a cell divides, if it's a bacterial cell, one cell becomes two and they're each independent life forms that go their own way. Well, we have we have lots of cells in our body and they all can divide. Most of them can divide. Something goes wrong and they divide uncontrollably. That leads to cancer. And it is inevitable. Cancer really will strike all of us if you live long enough because mm-hmm. every time a cell divides, it's a chance for a mutation. Right. And those mutations are random. The bad ones will eventually get you. It's a roll right. of the dice every right, time. Right, right, right. And you have a ton of cells and it's bound to happen, like you said, eventually. Exactly. It will. Bob Weinberg, I first heard him say it this way, you will get cancer. Maybe you'll die of something else first, mm. but if you live long enough, you will get cancer. And in fact, most people are living long enough to get cancer multiple times. Um, so, I mean, we, I think we'll delay it. We'll get better. But it, it is the beast that stalks us all. I want to ask you about a big uh, question that uh, really perplexed me, which is, um, as we've talked about, The goal of evolution is to get us to reproduce, sort of period, the end. But something like 10% plus or minus of couples have trouble reproducing. That seems completely – it it seems like if there was one thing that evolution could do right – it would be that, right? And everything else could just fall to pieces after that. Um, why, why is that? I mean, 10% is a lot of people. It's a whole lot of people. Right? Why is that an issue? It, you know, and that's exactly how I frame it in the book. It's like there's nothing that could be more under the scrutiny of natural selection right. than reproduction, and, right. and we still struggle with it. I mean, the different kinds of infertility all have different uh, reasons behind them. The thing that makes humans the most unique in this is our really high rate of infant mortality and maternal mortality. Hmm. Um, and this is something that modern medicine has largely solved. But if you go back even just 100 years ago, uh, lots of women died in childbirth. Lots of infants died either during childbirth or quickly thereafter. And that's just not in keeping with any other animals. If you've ever seen a, a gorilla give birth, 
it's like she doesn't notice. She continues eating and caring for other. It's not a painful, horrific, dramatic process. I mean, cows will just sort of walk away. Yeah, yeah. It's it's like nothing nothing to report. Nothing interesting here. Um, It's just. But but what we've done is we evolved these huge brains at the cost of childbirth, and so that that that's a great example of Mm. how we sort of lost sight of the physical form in order to evolve these big brains because these big brains are so useful in so many different ways that we sort of. We sort of tolerated the, mm-hmm. um, in terms of evolutionary numbers, mm-hmm. uh, all of the mortality that came with it. But that's just sort of the last step of fertility. Right. Um, early on, just a, a sperm and an egg coming together, a third of those times don't get it right. And these are the, the, the sort of the infertility that you would never see. It doesn't end up in a pregnancy. Hmm. So we lose a lot of our potential humans just even before development even really starts. Hmm. A lot of embryos get started, do their thing, and then just bounce right off the uterine wall and don't don't take hold. And a lot of it, we have no idea why not. I was going to ask you, do we know, are there other species that have infertility problems that we know about? Not like us. Okay. Not in our kinds of numbers. Let me just give you an example. In laboratory experiments with mice, a lot of times they want to make what's called a pseudo-pregnant female. So do you know, do you know how you trick a mouse into thinking it's pregnant? Is you just simply have it, let it have sex with a vasectomized male, and she will automatically start behaving pregnant. That's mm. how efficient pregnancy is in mice. Is her body just assumes she's pregnant now. Right, she right. had sex, so she must be pre- I mean, that's mm. always going to follow. Right. Uh, and of course, we know that that's not true in humans. I mean, if we got uh, pregnant every time we had sex, we would have covered the entire planet in, in humans by now. Right. We're just very much out of step with our fellow, even just our fellow mammals. Um, I, I think the better example for us is actually like oak trees. You know, every every year there's <laughs> thousands of acorns. To oak trees. Yeah, <laughs> thousands of acorns, and maybe one or two will actually grow up into an oak tree. That's that's sort of how we are. Hmm. You know, we talked about a lot of mistakes. What was do you think like the driving force in most of these mistakes? Was this just like random? You know, a toss of the dice. The body kind of got it wrong. I think each and every flaw has a different story behind it. And that's really why I wrote the book, actually, because each one of the backstories is very interesting. It tells us a little bit about our past. Um, I, I, they're like scars uh, from a battle won. You know, and, and, and that's the upside is we did win the battle. Right? We're still here. So we have these flaws. We have these limitations. Uh, most of them really reveal something about how we have succeeded, not just how we fail, but how we've succeeded. Mm-hmm. Nathan Lentz is the author of Human Errors, a panorama of our glitches, from pointless bones to broken genes. He's also a professor of biology at John Jay College at the City University of New York. Nathan, thank you very much. It's a pleasure. So there are a few body parts I've always been a little confused about. The tonsils, wisdom teeth, and the appendix. Do you really need those things, or are they just evolutionary mistakes? Nathan Lentz gives his quick take on it at our website, innovationhub.org. This is the story of a man who combined business, entertainment, and showmanship. His product, you could argue, was himself, and he was awfully good at marketing it. Detractors have called him a huckster, admirers thought he was brilliant at business, But this man's genius for self-promotion was like nothing you've ever seen. Well, maybe you've seen something like it, but it's rare. He built himself an over-the-top place to live, gaudy, incredibly luxurious, 
and he had his struggles, perhaps the most notable being that he ended up in bankruptcy. Fortunately, though, he found a new career in politics. Stephen Mim is the editor of an updated autobiography of this man, P.T. Barnum, who helped shape how we see entertainment and public figures today, and who is also on the cutting edge when it comes to promoting fake news. Mim is an associate professor of history at the University of Georgia and the editor of The Life of P.T. Barnum. He says that by the late 1800s, Barnum's fame eclipsed even that of presidents, as Ulysses S. Grant discovered when during his retirement, he went on a world tour. He comes home and, and Barnum has a conversation with him and says, you know, you, I'm sure everyone knows who you were. And he says, no, no, they didn't. But they knew who you were. <laughs> everyone asked me about you, Mr. Barnum, you know, and, and what you were up to. You are known. And, and shortly after that, Barnum liked to tell the story about how he got a card that said, Mr. Barnum, United States. And it had been sent from some obscure nation in the distant Far East. And that's all that the postmasters needed to know. They knew who he was. They knew where he was. So how did a boy who grew up farming in rural Connecticut become P.T. Barnum? Mim says he was hungry right from the get-go, hungry for fame and hungry for cash. So he moves to New York City and he starts scrambling around trying every imaginable vocation to make it rich, quickly, ideally. And eventually he settles on the idea of promoting entertainments. And he settles on a very curious and rather unusual entertainment. Hmm. He finds a woman who is a slave who claims to be George Washington's nursemaid, which would make her 160-plus years old. Wow. Of course, she's a fake. Right. <laughs> and he thinks she's probably a fake, but he also thinks that she's going to be fabulously entertaining. Hmm. And so he crafts a kind of cult of celebrity around this woman whose name was Joyce Heth, and she participates in this, hmm. and he begins to exhibit her as the the link to the revolutionary past, the, mm. this woman who can tell stories about George Washington and and who is, in her personal appearance, seemingly very, very old. And, of course, everyone is wondering, is she really what she says she right, is? Right, right, right. And, you know, it's not just this one person. He creates this whole thing called the American Museum in New York City. If you went into the American Museum what would you see? When did it start? Like, what was this museum about? Right. So the answer to that is, what wouldn't you see? In <laughs> other words, it was a place that had things that we don't normally view as being compatible in a museum. It would have stuffed animals, you know, taxidermy, for example. Mm -hmm. It would have perhaps artwork hanging on the walls or meteorites. But it would also have freaks, people who were physically deformed, perhaps, who would perform for audiences. It would have morality plays that taught people the evils of drink. It would have a wide range of entertainments, both didactic and also vaguely fraudulent, all under one roof, and all relentlessly promoted by its owner, P.T. Barnum. And how did he get the money for this? And why did he think that people would be interested in seeing he had incredibly short people, incredibly tall people, you know, like as you, Siamese twins, all these sorts of very unusual right. things that you might not come across in your daily life. How did he get around to doing this? And, and how do you think people would be interested in it? So he started this purely by pluck. He basically 
it's a complicated story, but he managed to persuade enough people to loan him the money to buy a failing, much smaller version of this American museum that had existed. Okay. And he put all of his chips onto this. And then, and this is what's key to understanding him in a much broader sense, began to relentlessly advertise it. Now, that to mm. us seems obvious. Right, of course right. you would advertise it. Right. But at the time, the idea of advertising something, of flogging it relentlessly, of handing out handbills and putting up posters and putting in notices in the newspaper, that was considered a little tawdry and, and maybe also just not necessary. Mm-hmm. But he... He, as he liked to say, said that advertising was a lot like medicine. You know, really small doses <laughs> wouldn't do any good, but really large doses might actually have the desired effect. And so he promoted this museum. He set it up so that you could see it for many blocks in lower Manhattan. Huh. He bathed it in, in light, limelight, hmm. and put up enormous uh, gaudily painted uh, canvases highlighting the wonders within. In other words, he made it a, a destination, the brightest spot in the brightest city of the United States. Now, the other thing, though, he did, and this is very noteworthy, is that for him, advertising blurred into a larger field, what we call public relations today. Okay. So that he was interested in stirring up not merely knowledge or awareness of what he was selling, but also creating fake controversies that would in turn generate more interest. Right, right. The the idea that no publicity is bad publicity. If you can just get your name out there, you've already won. Exactly. So, so for example, with this slave woman who was claiming to be George Washington's nursemaid, as sales started to drop off, the ticket sales started to drop off, Barnum did a very clever thing. He started to insert columns in newspapers that were fake claiming that Joyce Heth, this woman, was not in fact a human being, but was in fact what we would call today a robot. It was all an elaborate fake. Of course, it was already a fake, but now he was doubling down on (laughs) this. And so people suddenly flooded back in because they thought, well, maybe she is an automaton. I I hadn't thought about that. And so they started to go and look and scrutinize, and, and, and then he waged these imaginary wars in the newspapers between various fictional experts as to whether or not this was what it said it was or whether it wasn't. Uh, And he repeated this trick multiple times over. He did this again with something called the Fiji mermaid, which was not a comely mermaid, but rather a (laughs) monkey fish hybrid. It was not a mermaid is what you're saying. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Definitely not. And he he admitted that in his memoirs. Okay. But he also, of course, promoted it as these half-naked women Mm. in, in water. And, of course, then people would show up and see instead this monkey fish. But he did the exact same thing there where he had experts feuding, claiming that it was fake, claiming that it was real. And, of course, this just stirred up immense publicity. This became the thing that everyone talked about. You're listening to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. I'm talking with Stephen Mim, an associate professor at the University of Georgia, editor of the book The Life of P.T. Barnum, written by himself. Um, So uh, this American museum that Barnum opened, uh, he opened in the early 1840s. Uh, America was still, at that time, obviously a very young country. And I just wonder if this is a guy aiming at the broad middle class and tremendously successful and tons of people are coming through his museum, how much was he shaping 
for good and for bad, Americans' view of what the world was like. Because this was somebody who was putting on display people from China. Um, he put people from Fiji who he claimed were cannibals. I assume they were not cannibals. No. Um, no. On display. He, you know, but he was showing museum goers all kinds of things and people that they had not seen before and maybe sort of falsely shaping their idea of like what the world out there was like. That's absolutely correct. So he's teaching people, not self-consciously, but a lot of what people are seeing are going to reaffirm already their existing stereotypes, say, of the Chinese mm-hmm. or of, of people from Africa or the South Pacific, wherever. Right. And so there's a lot of casual racism that is shot through a lot of these entertainments. Probably most infamous was an entertainment that he called the What Is It? with a question mark at the end, which was a deformed African-American man who he sort of portrayed as a potential missing link. Um, And this was right after the the publication of Darwin's On the Origin of the Species. And so he is, without a doubt, he's no saint. He is engaging in a kind of trafficking in culture that is going to distort or, or, or rather solidify a lot mm-hmm. of people's prejudices. Mm-hmm. Now, the flip side of that, if I can go down that road, okay. is that the story with him, as it always is with him, is more complicated. So, for example, he was someone who had a kind of typical attitude towards slavery in his day, which was that he didn't think it should be abolished and he didn't really care. Mm-hmm. In the 1850s, his American Museum started showing adaptations of Uncle Tom's Cabin, Mm -hmm. which was a classic abolitionist novel that was turned into a theatrical production. And he basically took out all the radical elements of it and made it into like uh, an apology for the South. Interesting. Because in some ways, I think of Uncle Tom's Cabin as a book that changed a lot of minds or that was meant to change a lot of minds, right? Exactly. And so so here he is like basically defanging it. Mm -hmm. But his wife was an abolitionist and he, for a variety of reasons, actually came around to that position and then began staging productions that were abolitionists Mm. and in the Civil War became one of the staunchest unionists in New York City. Mm. And later in life, right after the Civil War, ran for office as a Republican in Connecticut in the state legislature and gave probably what was the highest point of his political career, a speech passionately advocating the right to vote in the state for African-Americans. So it's this unusual journey of enlightenment, by no means perfect, but but also probably in many ways reflecting the journey of enlightenment that many Americans went through at this time. It is hard to listen to the life of P.T. Barnum a celebrity who was a genius at marketing, who made a ton of money in New York, who built an over-the-top house, who went bankrupt, who, it didn't matter, built up another career, who then went into politics, was elected. It's hard not to see some parallels with our current president. But you've said you're not like a huge fan of that comparison. To talk about like where you see overlap and where you're, mm, you don't really see it. So I think there's a tremendous overlap between our current president and Barnum. If you look at Donald 
Trump's career, especially as a real estate developer mm -hmm. and a gadfly in Manhattan, there is actually a great deal of overlap. You know, these tales that Donald Trump, when he was younger, would call into publicists posing as other people does right. literally seem to be taken from the Barnum playbook right, right. of planting stories and so forth. Uh, you know, I, I, I hesitate to get too much into politics in a, in a kind of formal way, but Barnum's life is not a life defined by a kind of hardening of prejudice or a hardening or, be, or, or a growing conservatism. It, it seems to instead be defined actually by a growing progressive spirit. Mm -hmm. The other point, though, that I think needs to be made if we're going to talk about the comparisons is this issue of, of business ethics. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately, Barnum is sometimes held up as a practitioner of bad business ethics. And there's this phrase attributed to him that is not true, that a sucker is born every minute. That's he did not, not actually say that. something. He did not say that. Okay. In fact, what he did view was that all debts had to be paid punctually, on time. And he paid his way out of his entire bankruptcy um, by virtue of working it off mm. and um, doing so in this kind of rather <sighs> abstemious um, deferred you know, way of deferred gratification. He was someone who really genuinely honored his contracts. Um, people were more than willing to do business with him. And in fact, after he went bankrupt, the reason he was able to get back on his feet, because all of his former business associates helped him. Mm -hmm. They all were happy to lend him credit. He never done them. He right. never... They believed he was a good risk. They believed he yeah. was a good risk. Uh -huh. And I, I'm afraid that Donald Trump's business record is a little more... Um, well, it, it, it's a little different. Stephen Mim is an associate history professor at the University of Georgia. He is the editor of the book The Life of P.T. Barnum, written by himself. Stephen, thank you so much. Thanks for having me. One more thing about P.T. Barnum that has yet another Trumpian overlap. After Barnum's bankruptcy, he went on a tour of Europe and he gave a talk on the art of money getting. He initially thought the idea was ridiculous since, as he said, he was better suited to give a talk on the art of money losing. But Barnum's tour was a smash. And the art of money getting also came out as a book. 107 years before the art of the deal. Every day, scientists find out more about the brain, which is great for science, but it has also prompted a bunch of dominoes to fall outside of science and medicine. One of those dominoes has been in the courtroom, where lawyers and juries and judges are increasingly interested in what brain research can teach us about intentions and incapacity and lies. Why did someone do the bad thing? Why couldn't he or she stop himself when a lot of others could stop themselves? Francis Shen is an associate law professor at the University of Minnesota, and he's the executive director of education for the MacArthur Foundation Research Network on Law and Neuroscience. He points to a case that may be extreme, but that puts brain science to the test. The case was Roper v. Simmons, which was brought before the Supreme Court in 2004, and it centered around a teenager named Christopher Simmons. 
Christopher Simmons. He's coming out of the state of Missouri. And he tells his friends before he does this bad thing that he wants to uh, kill someone and throw them off a bridge. They break into this elderly woman's house. He goes and does it. Um, uh, he duct tapes her. He throws her over the, the water. She drowns. He then tells his friends afterwards, you know, I'm glad we did it. He's bragging about it. He confesses to it. It was a great Supreme Court case because it raised this question of, wait a second. Yes, he's 17. He was 17 years old at the time. Okay, okay. Yes, he's 17. But boy, it sure looks like he planned. He knew what he was doing. This wasn't a road rage incident. That wasn't a gang fight in the back. Where ten- How is it that we think that um, we should treat him differently? And indeed, the, what the prosecutor argued in that case was, yes, he's different, but in a way that should give us pause and treat him more harshly. Okay, so let's stop here for a second before we go any further. Simmons clearly did a terrible thing, and the prosecution wanted to give the jury the option of sentencing Simmons to death. But we've learned a lot about young brains in recent years, information the defense thought was important. Neuroscientist Frances Jensen, who I talked to a couple of years back, has written a book on the teenage brain. And she says, look, we used to think that young brains were like old brains, but with fewer miles on them. Science told us we were wrong. So actually, the front of your brain gets fully connected, fully hooked up for like millisecond to millisecond signaling, not until the mid to late 20s. It's there and it's partially connected, but the final process of making it, you know, fast access doesn't happen till later. Jensen is the chair of the neurology department at the University of Pennsylvania. She notes that when you're a teenager or even when you're in your early 20s, your emotions are fully loaded, but your judgment, your planning abilities, they are not completely in place yet. And we do see that teenagers have greater challenges um, controlling their impulses, controlling emotional lability, if you will, and are very, very susceptible to peer pressure, which is, of course, giving them emotional, you know, giving an emotional cue to them without that frontal lobe to say, bad idea, probably shouldn't, you know, shouldn't jump off that cliff, shouldn't do this. What research has taught us about how we develop our judgment and make decisions that are rational That ended up influencing the court, at least on the question of, should Christopher Simmons, this 17-year-old who had admitted to murder, should he be up for the death penalty? And the Supreme Court said uh, no. Um, They, in a footnote in that case, and then later sort of uh, in these other two cases reaffirming that that decision, said that the developing brain is um, one that's less culpable and one that's more amenable to change uh, going forward. Is there a push to say... Let's not have the cutoff be 17. Let's spare people in the early 20s from the death penalty because it might have once been thought that you stopped being a kid or your brain stopped developing at 18, but no more do we think that. There is an active push um, from some to it's called raise the bar, both in terms of how death penalty, of course, but just even more generally, we've got a system right now. You've got adults and juveniles. And once you're 18, you're in the adult system. And so there have been some attempts, uh, for instance, in California and around San Francisco to create young adult courts that would recognize that between 18 and 21 to 25, they're not quite fully formed adult yet, but they're also not 12-year-olds. Um, how do we create a justice system that allows for that? Because right now you've got two options. You put them with the adults or, or with the kids. Neither seems too good. So we would have to really reconceptualize the system. And that's what neuroscience and law is about. It's about saying, 
look, how, what do we understand about the brain, both in individual case, what might be changed, but it's taking a step back, how can we, um, you know, change the system? And, and those conversations are happening, and some of the most innovative localities are starting to do something about it. You're listening to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. I'm talking with Francis Shen, an associate law professor at the University of Minnesota and the executive director of education for the MacArthur Foundation Research Network on Law and Neuroscience. Tell me some kinds of cases or specific cases in which neuroscience is entering law that we might not be aware of, like now that people are really making certain kinds of arguments or entering, you know, brain scans into evidence or whatever it is. Sure. So um, let me talk about the holy grail of neuroscience and law, which is lie detection. There have now been just a handful of cases in which a defendant has tried to introduce brain-based lie detection. Um, one was with uh, fMRI, so a big functional magnetic resonance imaging scan. And in both cases, the defendant wanted to say, I'm innocent and I want additional evidence to prove I'm innocent, so please let this expert testify with this brain-based lie detection. And in, Let me stop you uh-huh. for a second. So that means, I assume... They're being scanned. They're in the MRI machine. And I guess people are asking them questions about, like, did you commit this crime? That's the idea. And they've previously asked them questions and gotten truthful answers, previously asked them some questions, and this is one of the methodological challenges, and instructed them to lie. So if I said to you, please say right now you're in Los Angeles, we're in Boston, right. you would be lying. We'll scan your brain there. Then we'll scan. Okay. For, so now... you see what a lie looks like in my brain. My name is Kara. That's true. What the truth looks like. And then you try to figure out the big question and with the big reveal. That's the idea. Now, there are all sorts of challenges, uh, scientific challenges. And as a result, in both cases, the judge in those um, cases decided not to let the jury hear that that evidence. Well, to that point, it seems like a serious concern when you get into very technical stuff and interpreting brain scans and all sorts of things that neither the jury nor the judge may be equipped. I mean, they didn't go to med school, probably, and they may not be equipped to really analyze what they're hearing or to cast a critical eye on the experts who are testifying. Like, who knows? They're they're trying to deal with things without real context. Does that worry you? It definitely worries me. And we've got a little bit of anecdotal evidence that um, some jurors could be persuaded. There's a defendant named Grady Nelson in Florida, and he did horrible things. He stabbed his wife over 60 times and killed her. He attempted to kill his stepchildren, just a litany of bad things. And it was clear that he was guilty. The only question in that case was, um, what was his sentence going to be? Was he going to death row or life without the possibility of parole? At sentencing, um, his attorney introduced what's called quantitative electroencephalography evidence. Big uh, name, but it boiled down to the jurors for these brain maps, pictures of a brain with the expert testifying about them. And Terry Lenneman's argument, so these are the lawyer's words now communicating the science, he said, um, Mr. Nelson has a broken brain. Doesn't excuse his actions, but it explains them. And pretty much said, ladies and gentlemen, jury, you ought to go with life. And they did. And three of those jurors spoke uh, to the media afterwards. Two of them said when they saw the brain scans, it changed their decision. One said it turned me all the way around when I saw that brain evidence. So the third one said, there's nothing wrong with that guy's brain. <laughs> but uh, but there is evidence that this could persuade jurors. And I think your question is right. I doubt that those jurors understood all the nuances of the, and certainly the judge, I th- don't think, of the, of the data and the procedures, but it was persuasive. Um, and it doesn't actually seem like seeing the brain scan changed anybody's mind. It was seeing the brain scan plus somebody telling them what that meant. 
right? I mean, you could put a brain scan in front of 99% of us. I would have no idea what I was looking at. I would need somebody to accompany that scan and tell me. So then I'm very dependent on the accuracy and the, you know, the work that that person has done to tell me things accurately. Yes. And if much like the old old cliche, if you go into the sausage factory and you see how those images are developed, you might be very concerned. Mm-hmm. Um, we've talked a lot about criminal cases. Do you think that our increasing knowledge of the brain is also going to change the legal system when it comes to cases that are not about murder or, um, you know, other terrible crimes? Are there court cases um, in that vein that stick out to you? Yeah, there, there's one big one, and uh, it's one of my favorite cases. It's called Allen v. Bloomfield Hills. I'll take you to Bloomfield Hills, Michigan, and there's a school bus coming, and the crossing gate goes down, ding, 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 and for whatever reason, the school bus driver swerves around and tries to get ahead of the train. Well, it doesn't work. The train collides with the school bus. Thankfully, there are no kids on the school bus, but we're interested in a guy named Charles Allen, who is the conductor of the train. A big train hits a bus. He walks out with nary a scratch, but he finds the school bus driver uh, horribly hurt. And Mr. Allen, the conductor, goes on to develop post-traumatic stress disorder. Mm -hmm. Everyone agrees he's got the PTSD, and pretty much everyone agrees that it was caused by this very traumatic incident. Here's the challenge. Michigan, like most states, has uh, an immunity set of immunity statutes. You can't sue the government for everything, but there's a bodily injury exception. So bodily injury, what is that? If he had been walking and his femur was broke, he got hit by the bus, he could sue for the lost wages due to his broken leg. But remember, he was the conductor in the train. Not a scratch on him, but he has the PTSD. Legal question, the science question, the deep question, is post-traumatic stress disorder a bodily injury, a physical injury? The district court said, no way. It's ne- we've never, it's a mental injury. Mental and physical are completely different. Mm-hmm. The appellate court, however, and Mr. Allen introduced brain imaging evidence, followed his logic. And he argued that the brain is a part of the body. Post-traumatic stress disorder, even if we don't know exactly what it is, we know it's physically in the brain. And therefore, you put those two together, PTSD is a bodily injury, a physical injury. Appellate court said, we agree, and it went up to the Michigan Supreme Court. There were amicus briefs from insurance, from plaintiffs that really drew a lot of attention, and it settled. So we don't know um, how these cases are going to work out. But to me, that might be the deepest question of all. Uh, And one of the most challenging laws based on what's described as mind-body dualism, that the mind is one thing, and then the the dual, the physical, is the rest. And when you say heart-to-heart, the heart pumps blood, matter of the heart, those are matters of the brain. Once we kind of culturally um, get our heads around that, we will need to re-envision law. And, and that's the longer plan. That's going to take centuries. But, um, but it's coming slowly but surely. And, you know, Alan V. Bloomfield Hills is an mm. example. If you think about where things are headed in the next 5, 10, 15 years, you know, do you see maybe a decision down the road or, or some trend in terms of how neuroscience and the law intersect that you think, I, yeah, I think this is coming even though it might surprise people who are not really focused on this particular area. Yeah, I think the big thing is that law has always, and clinicians too, but law too, have relied on really two types of evidence. What someone can self-report, so we'll ask you questions, and what others have seen, or what we've observed now, you know, with video cameras. What brain science offers is evidence that um, potentially is not observable directly. You can look at me all the time. You don't know what's going on in my brain. You can infer it, but you can't see it. And I can't explain to you what's going on in my brain. 
And so when there's a divergence between what you see, what I consciously experience, and what we see happening in my brain, that is going to really challenge law. And I'll give you two examples on either end of the spectrum. With good uh, accuracy, we can take um, uh, brain scans of six-month-year-old toddlers and predict whether or not they'll end up on the autism spectrum at two years. At the back end of this, we are moving towards taking a bunch of clinical data, including brain scans, and telling uh, individuals with some decent likelihood whether or not they'll develop uh, Alzheimer's um, or another form of, of dementia. So suddenly, in those cases, you look fine, you feel fine, but there's something going on inside that suggests things aren't fine. And that's going to raise a host of questions, legal questions. Does insurance have to get involved? If someone committed a crime in that older state, is that suddenly a defense? Again, I look fine, I feel fine, but there's something happening inside that we can now see right. that may suggest I'm not fine. And we're going to see instances of that more and more, and law is going to have to reckon with how do we take this data that had always been mysterious for the entire course of human history, we can now pull it out, but not with 100% accuracy, with all its warts, um, what do we do with that? Um, and, and I see that stuff coming. I think people aren't prepared for it. I don't think the law is prepared for it. Hmm. Francis Shen is an associate professor of law at the University of Minnesota. He's also the executive director of education for the MacArthur Foundation Research Network on Law and Neuroscience. Thank you very much for coming in. Thanks for a fun conversation. If you want to know more about how the developing teenage mind affects behavior, we've got links to the work of neuroscientist Francis Jensen, who you heard from at the beginning of this segment. That's at our website, innovationhub.org. Thanks to the people who helped put together this show. Associate producers Mark Sollinger and Mark Filipino, and engineer Doug Sugertz. From PRI and WGBH Radio, I'm Kara Miller, and this is Innovation Hub. PRI, Public Radio International.